we have talked about Paul's theology of God. But we've really targeted it as Paul's theology of God the Father. This morning, we're going to talk about Paul's theology of Jesus Christ. And it's the first of what right now are planned five lessons on Paul's theology about Jesus. The lesson this morning is on what in theological terms we would say is the pre-existent Christ. The pre-existent Christ. We're coming upon the Christmas season. Christmas is a time when we celebrate what? The birth of Christ. The incarnation. Well, when we talk about the pre-existent Christ, the question that we're raising... Uh-oh. I have... There it is. The question that we're raising is, who was Jesus before he was born? Who or what was Jesus before the incarnation? If we were at the manger scene in, in Bethlehem, we'd see a little baby with, we believe, ten fingers and ten toes and a belly button and, and uh, a beautiful little body. But before that, we say, well, Jesus was in Mary's womb. Okay, before that, where was he? Who was he? What was he? What was he doing? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus, we say, is the Savior of the world. Okay, what was he before he was that? These are the kinds of questions. And I first stumbled upon this as a, an idea on one windy day in Lubbock, Texas. I was a high school kid, and you've heard me talk before about the Bailey Bookstore in Lubbock. That was our Christian bookstore run by Ron and Betty Bailey from our church. And I loved that store. And outside of Taco Villa and Whataburger, I would use my money more than anything else to go to the Bailey Bookstore and to buy books. And they had a section that was set out with a little tag on it that said, Theology. And I loved to go there as a high school kid. I could spend an hour there and I'd pull books off the shelf and I'd thumb through them and I'd look for the ones that seemed to have something that I liked, that would teach me, and yet at the same time, something that I could afford. And because I made like $19 a week working at Holiday Mart when I was in high school. And so I would, I would sit there. That was take home. I actually made like 22 bucks a week. <laughs> so one day I was there and I found a book. The edition I found had an orange cover. It was by F.F. F. Bruce who wrote the Paul book that we used in this class some. The name of the book was The New Testament Developments of Old Testament Themes. This is the current edition. It no longer has that burnt orange color of the previous edition. I don't know if they changed it after the Tech UT game. <laughs> but I found it interesting. This one looks almost red and black. Anyway, I can remember as a high school student standing right there in front of the theology books 
with this book in my hand thinking, this is an interesting idea, New Testament developments of Old Testament themes, and flipping through it. And I came across a word. The word was theophany. I'd never heard that word. I'd taken some Latin, but I had not yet taken any Greek. So I wasn't there enough to realize this is two Greek words kind of put together. Theo, meaning God, very good. And y'all are thinking this means joke because they're funny, but it's not. It's like epiphany. It means appears in Greek, phaneo. Um, theophany is an appearance of God. Now, God appearing on earth. We know about Jesus, but the idea behind the theophany was this. Did Jesus ever come, Jesus is part of the Godhead, to earth prior to the incarnation? And there are some indications in the Old Testament, and some scholars have thought yes. If I had been a church history buff back then, and I had back then read Eusebius's church history, I would already know about this theological idea. But I had not yet read that. If you have a chance to go back and read the class we did in church history on, on Eusebius, you can download it on the internet and listen, or you can read it, the lit, written lesson off the internet. It, we give a lot more um, uh, meat to this idea beyond what we're going to do this morning. But Eusebius is writing a history of the church, and he says the history of the church is the history of Jesus. And so he starts his book out by saying the history of Jesus doesn't start with Matthew. Jesus existed before the nativity scene. And so to find the pre-existing Christ and understand it, we can go to the Old Testament. One of the examples that uh, uh, he used, he being Eusebius, comes from Genesis chapter 18. See if you remember this story. Let's see. And the Lord appeared to him. The him here is Abraham. The Lord appeared to him. See where we are? By the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Let's see, in the heat of the day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed to the earth, and he said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So he has water brought. He talks to them. They talk about Sarah having a child. And then, as we keep going down to verse 16... The men set out from there. These are the three men. They looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, and you'll see that's big capital with little capitals because it's Yahweh. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall whoops, surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh. So by doing righteousness and justice, Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he's promised him. Then Yahweh said, 
Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. And their sin's very grave. I will go down to see. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now they go down and Abraham continues to engage. And it says, Abraham, let's see, whoops, let's scoot up, still stood before the Lord. Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Look at in verse 25. Far be it from you, this is Abraham talking, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Yahweh answered. The question is, was God in human form? We know, and, and the Bible scholars have figured out, and Eusebius had figured out, that God told Moses when Moses said, Can I see you? Yahweh on the mountain says to Moses, No man can see my face and live. And so the scholars sit there and they say, What is going on here? If you go back to Genesis chapter 16, you'll read a conversation about the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is the Lord in messenger form. So the answer that was put out by Eusebius and, and countless others is that God, which would have been Jesus' part of the Godhead, had come in human form before as a messenger or, or as a, one to communicate the message of the Godhead. And that's the idea behind this word theophany. It's an appearance of God. Now, oh, well, let's go back. Thank you. That's this idea behind theophany, an appearance of God that Eusebius writes about. So now, that's what these scholars have put together. Where does Paul land on this question of who was Jesus and where was Jesus and what was Jesus before the incarnation? There are three passages that... I believe, bear greatest testimony to this from Paul that we need to look at. There's a passage in Philippians chapter 2. There's a passage in Colossians chapter 1. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, specifically the 6th verse. So those are what we're going to look at. And uh, we'll start this morning with Philippians chapter 2. And that'll be the first one we look at. It's a little bit lengthy. It's reproduced in your handout, but I'll throw it up on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, have, and I use the, the New English version here, have this mind in yourselves. Time out. We need this in context. Paul's trying to deal with folks who are having a, a, a problem, if you will, with arrogance and haughtiness. And so he's trying to bring them to a point of greater Christian maturity by stressing to them the virtues of humility and love and mutual respect. So now, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The passage goes on to say, therefore God highly exalted him and put on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. But that's future. Right now, Paul's looking back. And when Paul starts talking about the Jesus before the incarnation, Paul's talking about something that Paul never witnessed himself. That the apostles never witnessed themselves. So this is something that through the Holy Spirit they've understood and through their studies they've understood. And perhaps through the revelation, direct revelation Paul had with Jesus, our discourse was understood, but it's... They're looking back beyond their own personal experience, if that makes any sense. So, what do we get from this? Well, there are two easy points, but then we want to drill down a little deeper. Let's put a timeline up. If we have a timeline, we'll put smack dab in the center of the timeline, the incarnation. Jesus, uh, 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 I don't mean to insinuate the incarnation was the nativity. It actually happened nine months earlier or so. But let's, let's look at the incarnation. And what Paul's delivering in this passage is two things. He says before the incarnation ever happened, before Jesus chose humility over his selfishness. Jesus chose made a conscientious decision. He existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Before the incarnation, Jesus made a conscientious decision for humility and, 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 and humbling himself in an effort to take care of others. The other thing Paul teaches is that even after the incarnation, as a human... Jesus again chose humility for the good of others as opposed to his self-interest. That's the model and the paradigm that Paul's trying to convey to the Philippians. But as he does it in this passage, he puts in some things that if we drill down, really give us a little bit more insight into Jesus before the incarnation. So let's do it. Let's start with this language. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. Now, if you've got your Greek Bible, then you're one up on most everybody else in here. But you can, you can read this in the Greek, and it's really a fun passage. After you've had about a year or a year and a half of Greek, um, this is a great passage for you to start studying because there's some wonderful things in the way Paul wrote the Greek. What he did, let's put it back on the timeline. If we look at that timeline, Paul says, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, that's the way the English Standard Version translates that phrase. Okay, Though he was in the form of God. Now let's put some nuance to it. We're dealing with Jesus before the Incarnation. The NIV says, being in the very nature God. See the difference? Being in the form of God, being in the very nature God. Is this like form, like a jello mold? Is it the nature in the sense of uh, 
something else. You know, he's kind of like God. The New King James says being in the form of God, as opposed to though he was, it's got being in there, in the form of God. Why these nuances? Why on these translations that are done by panels and panels of top flight scholars, devout people, why the nuances in the translations? Is it because they wanted to sell a new copy so they needed to use some different words? No. The nuances are in the Greek. And, and there are words in the Greek that you just can't convey with one simple English word. There are ideas in the Greek that you just can't get. And so you've got to try and do this balancing thing to try and convey as much as you can. And ultimately there's an opinion. So what we want to do is we want to look at the word that's translated either form or very nature. It's the Greek word morphe. The Greek word morphe. Morphe in the Greek means either form or nature, but in a different sense than you and I are thinking. How much time do we have? We have enough time. Gary Greer, come here, please. He has no clue I'm doing this. All right, this is Gary Greer. Do you all know Gary? He's a good guy. <laughs> he always sits on the front row. Doesn't matter if it's class or church or wherever, which means I always know when he's cutting. He's here today. Gary has got good hair. He's a tall fella. Two legs, two arms, ten fingers, ten toes. Hold them out there. Show, show the fingers. All right, that's Gary, right? Now, if I wanted in Greek to talk about the morphe or the form of Gary, it's not right to say, ah, oh, guy with that hair, guy with that build, ten fingers, ten toes, two arms, two legs... That's not the morphe or the form in the sense of this word form. So, for example, the Greek word form here uh, means essence. What is it that makes Gary, Gary? You could shave his head and he would look goofy. Some, what's the old saying? God only made a few perfect heads and the rest he covered with hair. Um... You could shave his head, but would he no longer be Gary? He'd still be Gary. You haven't changed his essence of who he is. Oh, he could have a tragic accident. He could lose an arm. But he's still Gary. He's still in the Greek morphe sense in the form of or the nature of or the essence of Gary. You with me? Sit down, Bob. Thank you. So, you take somebody... Gary or whoever you've got, and you chop off their legs, you haven't changed their morphe, their form, their essence of who they are. The change in their body does not change their morphe. Now, Jesus was in the morphe of God. So some say he's in the form of God. Some say he's in the nature of God. His essence... His, his being was the being of God. You with me? Might not look the same, 
might not have the same physical features if there are such with God. Might not have this, but, but in essence, the reality of what makes God God was what Jesus possessed. And so when Paul says, though he was in the form of God, Jesus, before the incarnation, possessed the, was God, the essence of God. Now let's continue with the passage. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We're still back on the timeline. We're still did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So if we're looking at Jesus before the incarnation, he's the essence of God, but this equality with God is not something he, he grasped. Let me put it in a picture. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But the Greek word, it's not really grasped. It's harpagnon. Harpagmon. Harpagmon. I still pronounce my Greek with a Lubbock accent. If anybody listens to this and they're going to try to learn how to pronounce Greek from me, They need to listen to something else. I can read it. I can't say it. It's harpagnon. Mon. M-O-N is at the end. Harpagmon. Now, it doesn't really mean grasp. It's one of these, another word that's unusual in the Bible. That word morphe that Paul used. He uses it twice in this passage. The one we just looked at. It's not used any other time in the whole New Testament. And Paul's pulling out a concept that's not your average everyday concept. It's a concept that, 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 all right, this is a rare word too. This is not just a rare word in uh, uh, the New Testament. This is a rare word in Greek period. Paul's kind of put together his own word that some people used, but it's not very common. Technically, what it means, not technically, What it means the few times it's used in other contexts outside of the Bible is like if you're a purse snatcher, um, it's it's not wanting to hold on to something you might be snatching or thieving. Now that's not, Paul's not suggesting here that Jesus was a thief. He's already said in his very essence he was God. He didn't steal that essence. But the equality with God was not something he held on to like a thief does a purse. So the translators, instead of suggesting that, most of them say, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But the New King James actually nails it pretty good. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't something he was willing to steal and and hang on to as a thief would hang on to to a purse. New King James doesn't quite get it, but it at least throws in that element of thievery, snatching. Jesus did not consider equality with God something he had to snatch and hang on to. More about the pre-existent Jesus. But made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. All right, back to our timeline. 
Here we are. We're dealing with Jesus. We're dealing with Jesus before the incarnation, the pre-existent Jesus. And he made himself nothing. English Standard Version. Now look at the nuances here. New American Standard Version says he emptied himself. New King James Version. Made himself of no reputation. Okay, well now what's the difference here and why are they doing this to us? Uh, uh, I was asked uh, this weekend, um, do you, how much of the Bible is different if you read it in the original language as opposed to reading it in the translations? And I, my response, uh, and this is just from my perspective, I don't have a scholar to cite to, but, but my response was, you know, 98% of it doesn't change. You know, what you really need to know, certainly the, what you need to know about your salvation and things like that, you can get from, from even pretty poor translations. I mean, God's got his word out for us at least who speak English in, in so many different ways that there's nobody with an excuse of, gee, I didn't understand the gospel. Um, but 2% of the time, you really get some different flavors and nuances if you, if, you, if you dig down into the languages. So we're doing that a little bit this morning and, and hoping you can hang on to it because it's the only way we're going to understand some of what Paul teaches about the pre-existent Christ. Now, what's he doing here? Why these nuanced differences? Did Jesus just make himself nothing? Did he empty himself? Did he make himself of no reputation? Well, scholars fuss over this because here's the question. Did God, Jesus being God, become less than God when he became Jesus? If he emptied himself, what did he empty himself of? If he poured something out, what did he pour out? If he made himself nothing then what does that mean to be nothing as God? Could God ever be nothing? The King James, New King James, tries to find a way around this philosophical quicksand by saying, well, he made himself of no reputation. See, he emptied himself of the title and reputation that he had as God when he becomes man people try to kill him people make fun of him people you know he didn't carry with him the reputation of creator almighty nobody would really go up to god understanding him to be god on earth and spit on him or try something as foolish as to kill him so the new king james says what he emptied himself of was not the essence of godness what he emptied himself of was his reputation of God. Does that make sense? They believe that's what Paul's saying. The New American Standard Version, he emptied himself. They're not going to make the value judgment. They're going to say, the Greek says he emptied himself. You figure out how. That's your job. Our job's just, to, just the facts, ma'am, as they'd say on Dragnet. He emptied himself. That's what it says. 
made himself nothing, the English Standard Version says. That's also what it says. Now that's a little more edgy. That's starting to get you into the quagmire of did God become less than God? Because God, we're told, is immutable, never changing. How can God change and be something different than God? Um, I emailed this lesson out. Uh, Pastor Fleming, Dr. Fleming, uh, sent an interesting message. He says, you know, this is something that we covered in a, in a Ph.D. seminar course at seminary. Okay, this is not your run-of-the-mill Sunday school lesson. Okay. He says, and the view I adopted was the view that he emptied himself. He says, and here's the way I would say it. Jesus willingly emptied himself Jesus willingly emptied himself of the attributes of his deity placing those attributes on reserve didn't change who he was put his attributes on reserve it was always at his disposal but he chose to limit or empty himself to fulfill all righteousness as a man so that we couldn't say, well, yeah, you were righteous on earth, but that's because you had all the resources of God. Okay. I think Pastor Fleming's correct. I agree with him on this. And by the way, I'd have zero qualms, knowing him as well as I do, and knowing what we're dealing with here, telling you if I disagreed with him. This is not such a fine point that we're going to split the church over this one. Okay? This is pretty high gear stuff we're looking at. But that's what you're here for, right? You didn't come to hear your standard Sunday school class. You want a little something extra, okay? So that's what we're doing. You're in Ph.D. when we're done. Now, Jesus willingly emptied himself. I believe it because I see it in the scriptures. I think he could have called all the angels to take him off the cross. I think if he still had the essence of God as a human without emptying himself, he wouldn't have died and been put in the grave. I cannot understand Matthew 24 any other way when Jesus says, The hour the Son of Man comes again, the second coming, no man knows, I don't even know, only my Father in heaven. He clearly put something on reserve. Now, does that mean God changed when Jesus became, when God be, Jesus became man? No. He's still got... But it's, it's like it's locked away. It's, it's on reserve. While he was in human form, he, he truly emptied himself in that sense. All right, that's Philippians 2. Colossians 1. We're going to zip through this a little quicker. And if it makes you feel better because you're panicking and thinking, oh my goodness, what about 1 Corinthians 8? That takes 30 seconds today. All right. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. By the way, those are not referencing thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities on earth. He's talking about the heavenlies, whether angelic or demonic, any of the thrones and principalities and authorities in heaven and on earth. See, it applies in both places. Visible and invisible. Whether, whether uh, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, first point. He is the image of the almighty, of the invisible God. He's the image. Do you remember the Nike ad? Image is everything. Okay, in this case, they're right. Jesus was the image of God. Now, image is not that Greek word morphe. I told you it only appears twice in the New Testament. We already covered those back in Philippians. Paul uses a different word for image where he says he is the image of the invisible God. He uses the Greek word icon. We get icons from it. If you remember your Orthodox uh, uh, Catholic and Eastern uh, uh, um, art, you know the icon drawings? Icon is the Greek word for image. But there was a, a good deal of literature that used this word also in reference to the wisdom that God used, divine wisdom, personified wisdom. All the, the idea that, that there was a wisdom that God used almost as a person to create the world. The idea of the icon is the bridge that was the that, that crossed that huge chasm between the transcendent God, as we talked about last week, the God who is outside of the universe, outside of all matter and ideas and thoughts, totally apart from all of creation, there's a God that transcends that's outside. And the bridge that lets us see and understand that invisible God on visible earth is the icon. That's the image. And the true image of God, where we truly see the, the, the transcendent God revealed in the imminent earth, is here. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you were in our church history class, and you can remember back this far to Arianism, an early church heresy, this is the big trouble passage that the Arians used. See, go back. The firstborn of all creation. The Arians took this and said, on the timeline, get rid of that part because Jesus wasn't there. Or maybe I didn't quite do it right. He wasn't there before creation. God made Jesus and then through Jesus made creation. And that's why Jesus is called the firstborn. And it denied the idea that Jesus was truly Son of God eternal going back through eternity infinitely as well as forward. Now that's not... You can, can you see how that they might think that? Firstborn of all creation. So God starts creating. Evidently before Genesis 1-1, there was this Genesis pre-1-1 that says, let there be Jesus. And then with Jesus, God said, let us. That's, that's the, the theology. It's not good Greek though. It's okay, Greek. I mean, it could be what the Greek means, but not even remotely does it need to be what the Greek means, or is it likely what the Greek means? The Greek word is prototokos. 
of creation. Firstborn of creation. Prototokos is two Greek words put together. Protos is, protos first. Okay? Tokos is born. So it's the firstborn. But first doesn't mean just first in the sense of order, time. And it doesn't mean that today. I could introduce you to who uh, was the first in my graduating class. It does not mean that that gal was the first person to go. She was first in the sense of being at the top, right? Being number one. Okay? You can do the same thing. I tried to find a list of the creation, of who was first in creation. And it was the wildest thing. Sports Illustrated college football rankings. There they were. The Associated Press top 25 poll. <laughs> right there above Texas Tech is Jesus. When we talk about the number one football team, the first of football... We don't mean time-wise. First means something beyond that. And it does with Jesus. When it talks about the firstborn, it means out of everything that comes into creation, out of anything that ever exists within the imminent world, the highest rank who has all authority, the top grade, the top everything... Not first in time, first in power is Jesus. By him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. Everything created by, through, and for Jesus. Never an afterthought. The essence of God... The very form of God who's going to empty himself and set aside his godness so that he can be a human to redeem mankind. Because not only by him all things were created and through him and for him and not only is he before things, he's the beginning and he's the firstborn from the dead. Prototokos from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. Well, does that mean Jesus never existed until he was firstborn from the dead? No, because it's still he's not talking about firstborn in the sense of time. What he's saying is Jesus has all authority over the death. Jesus has authority over death, over creation, over everything. It's made for him, by him, and through him. Very essence of God. Finally, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Come back next week because we will look at Jesus being fully God. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here's your challenge. Find what Old Testament passage Paul is using here to talk about Jesus. That's your challenge. Find the Old Testament passage Paul's using here. I'll give you a hint. He's using the Greek version of the Old Testament. And dividing, it, it's an incredible passage. If what he's done here is really cool. But we don't have any time for it today.
So, points for home. Jesus humbled himself. I just want to rent my garments and pour sackcloth and ashes on my head. What room have we in our lives for pride? We who follow Jesus, who wear the label Christian, what right have we to be arrogant or haughty? Paul says it this way to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, pre-existent Christ, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. Same thing. Number two. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the chasm crosser. Behold Jesus and behold God. I want to challenge you to take some time to read the Gospel of John for no other reason than to see Jesus. Not because you're trying to answer your problems, not because you're trying to fulfill an obligation for quiet time. Not Just read it and say, Sir, you're, we would behold Jesus. We're such a, a culture of, I'll do it to achieve this end. I'm not telling you to do it to achieve any end. I'm telling you just to do it. Just behold Him. It will change who you are to the core of your being. Final point. He's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead. If Jesus has priority and power and authority over all of creation and even over the grave and he is your Lord and he is my Lord then what on earth are we afraid of? What can touch us? This is the same Paul who will say nothing Nothing can separate you from the love Christ has for you. Not a thing. Not sword, not famine, not death. Nothing. The economy's horrible. That's fine. I'm standing on the rock. Yeah, but you may lose your job. That's okay. I'm standing on the rock. Yeah, but life might get hard. That's okay. I'm standing on the rock. Yeah, but when it's hard, you get pressure. That's okay. I'm standing on the rock. Yeah, but, but pressure can lead to depression. I'm standing on the rock. Pressure leads to stress. I'm standing on the rock. I'm standing on the rock until the day I die. Then I'm going home to the rock. Join me. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and our Father, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The heavens declare your glories and your wonders. And Jesus Christ shows your splendor and love. We pause to behold you with confession in our hearts over our arrogance and our sin and our pride and And with the plea that you would plant our feet firmly on the rock 
so that as the winds blow, we are not shaken. And that we maintain our life in your grace, even unto death. We pray through our Lord, our Savior, the pre-existent, the eternal Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.